Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. This is episode number four in the seven-episode repost of the sermon series from 2012 called Touchy Issues out of the book of 1 Corinthians. This week, you're going to hear from lead pastor Nick Gibson as he talks about seeking happiness by staying put both in marriage and in singleness. If this sparks your interest at all to look into this topic more in depth, you can find resources about this on the Engage and Equip blog, and you can find a link to that blog post in the description. Thanks for listening. Hey, um, uh, we didn't say this earlier, I'm not sure if I see any, but um, if you've got a a kid in the service, you, you didn't send them, well, I would encourage you to dismiss them now. We're still in 1 Corinthians 7. The topics of that chapter are quite um, mature, and so um, if you don't send your kid, you, you're probably going to have to have a kind of a long talk with them after the sermon, if they're at all listening. And so um, I just don't want you to be mad at me or feel like you didn't get the wording you needed, but I got to talk about this stuff, and so that's just kind of how it is. Um, if uh, you got a Bible, there's one right, if you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you. Why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7? That's like 1777 or something in the Pew Bible, if that's what you're using. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I really encourage you to have your own Bible and to bring your own Bible. I think that's really good. Um, there, you know, being able to just look on the next page or to write something in there, you can't do that with a phone and you can't do that. You can't look at the next page right next to it on a phone and you can't write something into it. Um, in the Pew Bible, you're not supposed to really write in the Pew Bible. I wish my wife would listen to this. You're not supposed to do that with the Pew Bibles. And um, you'd put a date in your, your name or something. Yeah, don't do that. So, um, yeah, it's good to have your own Bible, but we have few Bibles because if you don't, there it is. Um, or if you're a visitor or something. Okay, so I'll, um, some of you got to hear Lloyd last week. I was in Guatemala with my daughter. That was a very interesting and interesting experience. And um, man, those people, like, they live on literally, they say, they say it's mountainous. They're not kidding. It is literally like that. They're like planting corn on, like, it's crazy. Um, yeah, so I wasn't here in Lotus here. It's great. It's great to have a guy in the church who's invested years of his life to get a master's degree in theology while he's like an executive at, you know, an insurance company. It's, it's such a blessing for me to be able to go and know there's somebody competent and it's going to bring it. And um, So oh, Lloyd's here, so thank you, Lloyd, and I um, really appreciate that. I'm, and you'll notice if you're here, I'm preaching on some of the same verses, but that's just Lloyd and I are that different. You will not recognize, we wouldn't even know we were on the same passage if I didn't read it probably. So... Um, and he brought some stuff as a guy who's talked to his kids about this stuff that I thought was really helpful. And um, so, yeah. So, Jared, I asked your dad if I could go on that retreat so I could see how he does it. He said, yeah, so I'll see you in a month or two on that thing. I'm just kidding. That's not true. So, there it is. Okay, let's, um, let's read this and get rolling. Uh, I'm going to read the first 24 verses of 1 Corinthians 7. 25, 25 verses, 24 verses. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may, be, you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that, Satan will, that, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this and this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widow I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, not I but the Lord, or I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman, if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at his price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. There's a lot in this passage, isn't there? Chapter 7, I mean, how do you break this thing up? Um, It talks about divorce. It talks about singleness. It talks about marriage, when to get married, you know, when not. I mean, just, I mean, it it covers a lot. Um, Let me clear up just a couple things in the Bible text here before I move on, because otherwise I won't get to. One of the things that really confuses people, if you look in verse 10, he says, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. In parentheses, you see that? And then you drop down to verse 12. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. Right? That can be very confusing. Because you go, okay, wait a second, I thought this was the Bible. So is that part of the Bible? How does that work? Is that as authoritative? Because he said, I, not the Lord. Okay, so here's, here's what you got to know about this. Um, when he says, not I, but the Lord, what he means is, the Lord Jesus, I'm quoting him. Like when Jesus was here on earth, he said this, like verbatim, and I'm just relaying to you what the Lord Jesus said when he was here. And in that sense, it is directly from the Lord, meaning Jesus. When he was here, he said this. As opposed to, this is still totally from God. It's authoritative. It's part of the Bible. It's from the Apostle Paul, like all the rest of this book. But I'm saying, I'm not quoting Jesus here. I'm telling you instead what we lay down in all the churches and what. Does that make sense? Um, I've, I've spoken with people who are just like, oh yeah, but that's not even, I mean, he said that's not part of the Bible, but that's really not the way to look at it, okay? Just wanted to clear that one up. Um, even though this whole chapter is basically seems to be about mar- marital status, in, in some ways it's not. In some ways it's just about what kind of person you are and what relationship you have to reality. First. Um, I found this picture on the internet. I really, I like it. Um, the guy's looking at out his window. Reality's the worst game ever, right? I, I, I mean, we just, have an, we just have issues with engaging with reality. I mean, a lot of us would just rather not. Um, I was, I found this online in the wiki how, how to mentally escape from reality. Now, here's the funny thing about this. Here's the funny thing about this. You read the 12 things this woman says to do to escape from reality. You know what they all, they all are? They're all ways to engage with reality. Like, she just assumes. I mean, she doesn't say this. She's saying, hey, get back in. But she's saying, get back in touch with reality is what she's saying. I mean, she, I mean, there's one where she goes, go drink from a garden hose. Or like, get in the sun. Or like, basically she's saying, go have a tactile experience. Because you don't do that. All you do is you sit in an office chair and you type on keys. That's not how the world's supposed to feel. I mean, one of the, I mean, how, how, how many times, like, I mean, think about this. Do you think in 1240, people bathed themselves and said, ooh, that's cold, when the shower was like five degrees off what they're used to? No. We're sensation babies. Like, we can't feel any pain. We're like, ah! It's a little bit cold. We're like, it's freezing in here, Nick. I mean, how, this church isn't run properly. It's four degrees colder than I'm used to. You know what I mean? It's like, or it's, oh, it's so hot. What? I was in Guatemala. Those people don't even think it's hot. They're like, yeah, it's a little sunny. I mean, and I'm just like, it's like 15 billion degrees. Like, I feel like I'm on the surface of the sun, right? And they're like, yeah. I mean, I, and, and we're wimps. I mean, I was, I'm like, I'm, 
I'm trying to hike after this 18-year-old girl in plastic sandals, and I'm dying. I thought I was gonna, my heart was going to explode. I was going to die I, in Guatemala when somebody's going like, to comfort me in my last moments in Spanish that I didn't understand. Like, I thought, I mean, it was like that. I mean, Kathleen had the same experience. We just were wimps. And so we, we, it's, we have no tactile experience of the world. I mean, do you, have you noticed this? And so this whole woman, she writes all these things like, go do this and go talk to a real human being that cares about you because, hello, you're a relational being. Like, all this kind of stuff that we just forget about while we drink lattes and type Facebook things and, you know, do our work. And so um, it's, it's funny that people think of this as escaping reality when in fact it's we have so created a life that has no relationship to reality that we actually have to do things to reconnect with it. And it's partly because of the kind of people we've been coached to be throughout most of our lives. There was a really bad movie in 2006 called The Stepford Wives. Now, some of you who are a little older know that apparently there's a 1975 version of this movie that's actually a pretty good movie. That was like a cutting-edge thriller for its time rated PG. And, um, but in 2004, there was a remake of it that's terrible. It's terrible. The only thing good in the whole movie is Nicole Kidman's face. I mean, that's it. Um, but... Um, the, sort of the premise of the movie is there's this place where these like men have conspired to automatize their wives with like microchips in their brain so that they'll be like the perfect wife. So that they're like, you know, the, the frat boy honey on one side, but then like the perfect housekeeper on the other. It doesn't require anything of you and you can do whatever you want and blah, blah, blah. And that's, that's the perfect wife and that's what, isn't that what everybody wants? And let's turn our wives into that. And there's this one point, it actually didn't even make it into the movie, but it was in the trailer to the movie where Nicole Kidman is starting to find out what's going on, but she's not exactly sure yet, and she's, she's sitting at a desk, and she turns to her husband, who's Matthew Broderick in this movie, and she, she asks him this question. She said, if you could change one thing about me by pushing a button, would you? If you could change something about me or change me by pushing a button, would you? I mean, honestly, if, if you could change your spouse or your boss or your parents— or your kids, by just pushing a button, would you? You're lying. <laughs> right? I mean, that's very—and and it basically gets down to this very basic question that this is what this chapter is about. You may think, Nick, where are you going? This is what this chapter is about. It comes down to this very basic question. There are two kinds of people in the world— um, and you're one of these two kinds. Either you're the kind of person who changes your situation to seek your happiness, health, and fulfillment, or you're the kind of person who seeks to be transformed in the situation that you're in to seek your happiness, health, and fulfillment. There's, there's two kinds of people. Either, either you believe that it's your environment that dictates your emotional success— Right? Remind you of any modern parenting styles? Right? Well, I didn't manage his environment, so of course he acted out. No, he acted out because he's badly behaved. And if he doesn't have a perfect environment, then of course that happens. Right? No, I mean, that, and, but, but why, does, why do we parent that way? Because that's how we live. We live that way. We try to make sure we have a perfect environment around us, and if that all works, then we'll be good, and we'll act well, and we'll feel healthy, and we'll believe God approves of us, and we'll— Right? We'll ch and, and if something isn't working, we're going to change our situation because that's what's going to make us happy. Or are you the kind of person that recognizes that your roles, your situation, and where you are is a dictate of God's providence and it is God's means by which to love your neighbor, glorify himself, and transform you? You're one of those, you're one of those two kinds of people. And here's the, here's the issue. Only one of them's Christian. Only one of those two has any kind of relationship to the Christian faith as it is. Um, the heart of this passage, of this whole chapter, really is in verses 17 to 24. And essentially what they argue is that you and I are called to be fully devoted to God in whatever situation or role we find ourselves in. You and I are called to be fully devoted to God in whatever situation or role we find ourselves in. We are not called, either on our own or in some strange spiritual way in the name of God, to transform or change our roles 
because we just want to do something different and we think that that's how God is going to use it or change us or whatever. So look at these verses real quick. Seven, I think I actually have a slide of these. Yep. Wait, so that's the wrong section. Sorry. Let me, let me, he says this. Nevertheless, this is verse 17, I'm reading it. Nevertheless, each one of you should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned him to and to which God called him. Now that is in these verses three times. I'm not just picking this verse out as like something mildly important. Three times in these verses. So there it says it. Look at verse 20. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Verse 24. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Think about that. One paragraph. He repeats it three times. The logic is it's totally about obeying God. Right? He says, he says, you know, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is, uncircumcision is nothing, but obeying God's commandments is what counts. That is, right? What, what does it mean to obey God? It means to accept the life that he dictates for you and not changing your environment to whatever you want it to be or doing whatever the heck you want to do. It is accepting a role, fundamentally, that I belong to God, he tells me to do stuff, and I live within those boundaries, right? That is a, a role. That's called being a Christian, right? And so, he says that's what counts, living out that role, not trying to change that role. And then, it's really God-centered. He says, listen, when he, he says, brothers, listen, as before God, I'm telling you, don't change the role and situation that you find yourself in. And then it's universal. He says, he says in verse 17, he says, this is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Like, he isn't saying, hey, you Corinthians, you're a little out of whack. Let me just tell you something. He says, I tell this to everybody. On every continent I'm on, in every place I'm in, in every subculture that I talk to, I tell them to do this. I tell them this. You need to stay in the situation and role that you found yourself in when you were called. And then... And then think about this. What does he apply it to in these verses? See, the whole chapter is about marital status, right? But what does he talk about in these verses? Slavery. Think about that. Slavery. Why slavery? Well, here's one reason that could be. Is marital status is is the area of life where we are most prone psychologically to lie to ourselves and give ourselves the license to do whatever we want. If, if, I, asked you th- if I asked you this question, what area of life are you most prone to say, listen, I deserve to be happy. I'm never going to be happy like this. I have the right to change my situation and do something different. What is the number one area people, dang it, they are going to give themselves the license to do that no matter what you tell them or what you do? It's marriage. It's marriage. People aren't going to stay in a bad—they're not going to stay in a bad marriage. Say what you want. Do what you want. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to be unhappy forever. Who knows how long this guy will live, right? I mean, it's just—I'm not doing it. I can't—I'm never—because—I mean, the belief is somehow—and so—and what about—what's right next to that? Celibate singleness. That's like, you just start making a list. Number two, celibate singleness. The idea that you're single and you can actually deal with the restraint from sex, from sex and the loneliness that can come from a single lifestyle. That, that that role is actually something that God can do great things in. I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, think about it. Most people think enduring that from like 16 to 21 is insane. Imagine it being your whole life. Five decades. You know, John Stott, who just died a couple of years ago, was in his very late 80s or early 90s, was a celibate man his whole life. And he didn't have the gift. People asked me, so you had the gift of celibacy. You didn't like girls. He's like, no. No, he said, I actually almost married a couple of times, but then it just, I just didn't feel like it was the right thing, and it, then it just never happened. It just didn't work out. I just served God as a single man. It's, yeah, apparently he wasn't psychologically deranged behind closed doors which is what most of us really believe about long-term singleness. And we use the priest scandals in the Catholic Church as license for that. But listen, you're more likely to get sexually abused at a public high school than in a Catholic church. And most of those people are married. It's not the singleness that does it. People can be single. It's totally something people can do. But we are so sexualized as people and so sexually broken as promiscuous society that the idea of it just seems crazy to us. And so, the idea that Jesus can say to you, listen, 
Here it is. If you're single, you're celibate. Boom, that's it. That's just like, no. And so you see, these things, the marital status things, they are at the top of the list of stuff we just go, that's just crazy. I, I don't have to do that. I'm not doing that. I'm changing my role. I'm doing something different. I'm going to be a non-celibate single, or I'm just going to get, you know, I'm just going to get married to whoever. I don't, they don't have to fulfill any biblical requirements. I'm just going to get married. Or, or I'm not staying with that person. Nobody can tell me I have to stay with that person. They're the one who's a jerk. You see, and so, so what example does he use? As even in this situation, you don't have the right to unlawfully just change it, to, to, to disobey God in undoing it. He uses slavery. Think about that. And he really believes this because later on in his ministry, there was a slave that actually did run away after he'd become a Christian, a guy named Onesimus. And he ran away and met up with Paul in a different place. And you know what Paul did? He didn't say, Onesimus, you got away. That's awesome. Now you can experience your freedom in Christ by being free and you can come with me on my missionary journeys and all that kind of stuff. Even though Onesimus apparently really served Paul in a very difficult time. You know what he did? He sent him back. He sent him back because Paul believed that law was ordained by God, even bad ones. Now, of course, Paul also made sure Philemon understood the nature of the relationship. Because under Greek law, he could do whatever he wanted. And that's when he came back. He's a runaway slave, right? And so if I start boring you later on this sermon, just flip over to Philemon. It's a one-page book in the Bible where Paul sends this letter back with Onesimus to Philemon, his owner, to talk— and there's this page about how, how Paul just talked about how— well, I'm sending back to you my son, Onesimus, whom I love, and who's your brother, and who you should be like a— and he basically undermines the whole institution, but, but sends Onesimus back because Onesimus does not— get to change his role because Jesus saved him. And if, and if a slave doesn't get to run away, what do you think your chances of leaving your, you know, jerk spouse are? Really low. Really low. Or the chances of you just being single but just not worrying about the celibacy bit. What do you think the chances that that's okay with Jesus and that you can just do that? Or if you're just dating somebody, yeah, we'll sleep together. We'll, we'll get, you know, we'll get to the marriage thing if we do. But, you know, the idea of singleness, that's just crazy. What do you think your chances that Jesus is okay with that? Really low. You see, we're really good at convincing ourselves by getting into a little mob together, right? And we all do our little misbehaviors, and we go, well, everybody's doing it. He's not going to kill us all, right? I mean, it's the whole idea of a mob is you can't arrest everybody, right? But you see, there was this saying about how God was going to sort them out. You remember that saying? God can sort it all out. I mean, I I would never want to be— I would never want to be too comfortable being protected by a mob. And I think that there are really important reasons why God is not really going to let us get away from this even if we want to. Like, there's sort of this sense, like, I don't know if you've ever been, like, thought about this as a kid, where you're like, you know, if I make this part of what my parents want to do with me hard enough, they'll still be my parent, they'll still do all that stuff, but they'll just let me get away with this bit. And I think sometimes we think we can do that with God, that we can, you know, kind of do the Christian thing in most areas, but, you know, if we just make this bit hard enough, and it's kind of, then we can kind of do what we want over here, and it'll be, it'll work out okay. But listen, I don't think this is one of those things, this isn't on the periphery. This is right at the middle. Because in this, three very big things are at stake. One, the glory of God himself is at stake. And you need to be careful about how you think about that because God says in, in Isaiah, he says, listen, I do not, he's, God does not fool about his glory, about, about people seeing him for what he is. He knows he's the most valuable thing in the universe. He knows he's the most pleasurable thing in the universe. He knows he's the one thing everybody should have some revelation of and see so that they can enjoy and savor it and be related to it forever. He doesn't fool around with that. And when we fool around with that, it's just really bad. And, and his, he sent Christ, and he created this whole thing called Christianity, and created a church, and sent the Savior, and poured out his Spirit, is so that he could be known as he is. That is, people would see his glory, and his, he just he doesn't fool with that. And us remaining in the roles he's given us, and obeying him with our lives, and living out um, his transformation in whatever imperfect roles we are in is a means by which his glory gets displayed. 
You see, when we switch up our roles and say, forget you, Jesus, I'm going to do what I want, we demonstrate our own glory, our own sovereignty, our own providence, our own. We demonstrate that we are big and God is very small. It's when we say, look, look, I don't care how bad all this stuff is. Jesus is the most valuable thing in the universe. I'm going to walk with him, and I believe he's a good and generous father with a good providence for me, and I'm going to find out what that is, and I can only find out what it is if I walk this thing. You know? I mean, Jesus is shown as valuable. When five women are sitting around having martinis, and all of this woman's friends are telling her how, how dumb her husband is, and, how, and she goes, listen, you girls need to back off. He's my husband. Even if I don't feel like I love him right this second, which you guys are trying to work out for some reason, I'm called to love him. I'm going to love him. And I'm, I'm going to be with him till one of us croaks. And you need to just back up. Because the Savior has told me this is who I am. And I'm not giving up that identity because you little catty girls want me to just complain more. So that you can complain more. So that you can dump out on your husbands. This is what you want to do. I'm not going to give you license for that. The Savior is worth it to me, right? Or like when a guy hits another guy in the head with a golf club for talking about his wife. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's, Jesus is shown as valuable when we don't go along with that stuff. Secondly, um, your neighbors and your enemies need this from you. So one of the ways God is redeeming the world is in, through our roles and duties and responsibilities. Your kids need you. Your husband or your wife is supposed to receive redemptive impact from you, even if they are a jerk or a witch. And that's, that's what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to love your neighbor, and you're supposed to love your enemy. It's just, it's just you're, you're supposed to serve your boss. You're supposed to help your—that's how it works. You are a citizen— you are supposed to help protect your neighbor. And you may have to die for your country. I mean, that, these are roles and responsibilities we have. And one of the ways God's glory is shown is when we love our neighbor. And part of the relationships or the roles that we don't like is when our relatedness creates problems for us. You can't get away from the relatedness because we're called to love our neighbor and our enemy. If you are loving your neighbor and your enemy, your roles are going to stink a bunch of the time. If you're supposed to love incompletely redeemed or unredeemed people who are your neighbors and your enemies, what do you think that's going to play out like? And thirdly, the most difficult place for us to grow spiritually is a life that's going well. I mean, how spiritually useless is a life that's going well? It's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. In fact, um, sin grows so well when your life is going well. Like when my life is going well, my kids are doing okay, my wife's doing okay, pride is growing, you know, sloth is growing. There's all these sins that grow really well in lives that are going well. And they're so hard to, to get at because, you know, you're kind of like, oh, I think pride is growing, but you know, I'm doing a really good job. I mean, look how everything's going. I mean, it's hard to be like, oh, there's, I mean, when I, Lex, you know, things go bad, and I have my wife and I have a big fight, and I behave poorly, that's, it's very hard for me to go, well, I was, I was fantastic. I mean, that's really hard to do. You see it. You see anger exploding. You're like, oh, that was wrath, and that has to, we have to do something there. I need to repent, I need to apologize, and I need to figure out what's going on in here. But see, when things are going well, it's really hard to see that stuff, and it just kind of grows everywhere. When your life is going crappy, there are some real opportunities there. For you to grow because all the sin starts coming up because you're angry and you're frustrated and you aren't getting what you want and all this selfishness and all this sin just comes brimming to the surface. There's so much that can be done there. You know, so much that can be done. But if you just kick rolls and use your power and resources, just change your environment so that you can succeed, you're just using a crappy parenting model and God's not into it. He's a wonderful father. He doesn't spoil his children. He wants you to be in situations where you could behaviorally fail so that he can shepherd you as a father shepherds his children and grow you up into the humanity he wants for you to have so that you can be in extremely difficult circumstances and be much happier than your average moaning American who everything is going well for and has only first world problems who somehow can't be happy. I mean, did you, do you know that the highest suicide rates are always among the rich? 
They're always among wealthy people. The, the poorest culture in the world has a zero suicide rate, the Aborigines of Australia. Zero suicide rate. Poorest people on the face of the earth who can't control their environment at all. They live in the desert. So, uh, what I want to do is, over the next three weeks, I'm going to go through the three sections of this chapter. I want to talk a little bit about um, marriage this morning. Um, I'll talk about in divorce and singleness over the next two weeks because it's just too much to do at once. So, um, basically, it's just, um, in this chapter, we're called to be fully devoted to God in um, marriage. We're called to be fully devoted to God in singleness, and we're called to be fully devoted to God in our rejection of divorce for ourselves. Does that make sense? So over the next three weeks, we'll do those. So just this week, we're just going to do being fully devoted to God if you're married. I put married to a Christian, but you could just say married. The assumption here is that we're talking about a Christian couple. But what this says, it says for anybody who's married. Um, now, to put, not put too fine a point on this, the point here is be fully devoted to God in your marriage. Now, in this passage, there's many ways to be fully devoted to God in your marriage, but in this passage, the way to be fully devoted to God in your marriage is by being your spouse's ally against sexual immorality. Being your spouse's ally. Now, I, I, we use the word ally very carefully, and here's why it's got to be that word. Because your um, success or failure in sexual morality is your responsibility. It's yours. It's not somebody else's responsibility. You, you can't say, well, my wife doesn't, you know, help me out, and so I'm, you know, I, yeah, so I look at porn, so what? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's not her fault, and it's not his fault. It's your fault. It's your problem, and it's your responsibility, okay? You have to take 100% responsibility for your own sexual morality, okay? Period. Now, however, if we're married to someone— you ought, you exist first, okay? And I would, I would argue this from Ephesians 5. It explicitly says it for men towards women. I think it's also true for women towards men. You exist first and foremost to present your spouse as spotless as possible to Jesus when he returns, spiritually, morally, and as a human being. It's your number one responsibility. Everything that you do is for their good, namely loving— what is love? love definitely the commitment of the will to the true good of another person. What is the true good of another person? Well, if the Savior lives, then it is the, uh, the spiritual unitedness to Christ and the forming of the personal character and morality in relatedness and in conjunction with and in desire to be with Christ. And that's your job as a spouse. Now, the question is, how do you do that? Well, if the first thing is, you should want to be your, your spouse's ally in every area of godliness. One of them is in their battle against sexual immorality. And therefore, if you exist for the sanctification, as well as the happiness and mutual care of your spouse, you should want to help them in every area of their spiritual struggle and in every area of their spiritual growth. That should be a desire, a very potent desire in your heart. Now, this passage is speaking about that in specific context to a sexual, a very sexualized and a very sexually broken culture, right? We talked in other weeks, and Lloyd touched on this again, um, that Corinth was a very, very sexually broken culture. I mean, it was a sailor town. There were prostitutes everywhere. It was very normal for, for, for boys to be going to prostitutes very early. Prostitution was part of religious worship in Greek culture. There are priestesses who are essentially prostitutes everywhere. It was very inexpensive. It was a very sexualized and very sexually broken culture. Totally different than ours. Right? The, the issue is um, people's experience of sexuality has a lot to do with their environment and their experiences. If, I mean, I think I talked about this two weeks ago. What do you think it was like, sexual immorality, three weeks ago, for a guy in 1450, you know, in rural France who knew three women, two, you know, most of whom he was related to? You know, I mean, it was just—he wasn't a very sexualized man. I mean, it wasn't—he didn't have a, a hyper-broken or a hyper-affected sexuality. And so the idea that he would be running around with prostitutes, I mean, he just—he just wasn't all revved up. You see what I'm saying? But you see, that's not true of us. As far as I can tell, and I think it stands to reason, 
Your average man or woman who exists right now is probably the most sexually amped up critter that the world has ever known sexually. Whether it's women, you know, reading romance porn or, or, or men, inter- you know, interacting with these kind of images that are just everywhere. It's, there is a sense of a confused sense of romance, a confused sense of what we deserve and what we should be experiencing, a, a, a wiring in our brain from constant hormonal evocation towards these images that is very profound. I mean, um, Adam was doing research for me the other week, and he, he found this, this one psychologist who was, who was saying that there was, there was a study done that if you, if you have a hat on the monitor of a computer and you look at porn on that computer for a month, at the end of the month, the sight of that hat will arouse you. Like, that's how, like, weirdly wired— it's, like, all kind of, like, wired in here, and we've got it really screwed up. And so what he's saying is, he says, listen, given that you live in Corinth— And given that you ought to want to be your spouse's ally against sexual immorality, one of the important ways—in fact, the only way he mentions here to be your spouse's ally against sexual immorality is by having sex with them. It's just what it says in the passage. That's not much of a sermon proposition, is it? Now, listen, you need to understand that this is not Paul's sort of high theology of marriage, okay? I think Lloyd mentioned this last week. Paul's most theological statement about what marriage is supposed to look like is in Ephesians 5, in which he argues that the, the husband is meant within the family structure to imperfectly mirror Christ to his wife, and the wife to imperfectly mirror the church and the relationship of Christ's bride back to himself, such that all of humanity sees an imperfect picture of redemption in every human family. Now that's, those are some big shoes. Those are the, you know, those are seven league shoes. I mean, those are big, and they're hard to fill. And that's, that's sort of the, that's the 30,000 foot theology of marriage. But the urgent, practical, and needful application in this specific situation within a sexualized culture to these Christians in a church that had a lot of sexual immorality was this. He said, listen, y'all need to be, he probably didn't say y'all, but he said, you need to be your spouse's ally in this. And one of the ways to do that is by having sex with them regularly and, and normally. Now, there's a, a couple things that, that we have to, that I want to say about this. Um, and w- one of the things that we have to look at in terms of the practical theology of Christian sexuality is, what is, what is this for? Um, when I was a kid, um, my, uh, my brother and I got into a hobby phase for a while. You know those stores, like, they're stores that are designed for things boys can hurt themselves with. You know what I'm talking about? Like, there's, like, like planes you can put together and model rockets that explode and, like, scimitars. And, I mean, there's all these sorts of, like, things in this hobby shop, right? And so, and it's kind of, they're kind of like drugs that get more intense as the boy gets older. You know, so you start out with, like, little more model airplanes. So we, we would go and we'd buy these, like, little model airplanes— and, you know, they're, you know what I'm talking about? They're the thing you snap all the parts off, and then you, like, clip them together, and then you're supposed to school them. Well, see, my brother and I were two years apart, and these were a critical two years. You know, I'm, like, six or seven, and he's, like, nine or ten. Those are big—that's a big difference. And so he'd get his stuff home, and he'd snap all the little pieces out, and he'd, he'd read the directions, and he'd snap these pieces together. And then right at the end, he'd take this, this, the, the glue— which is basically crazy glue, you know, it's like super glue. And he just put it in a couple of spots where it says, and he'd glue the stuff together, and then he put the decals on. And it really looked, you know, it was a model of the plane. The problem was, you see, for my brother, the most interesting thing on the table was the plane. But for me, the most interesting thing on the table at seven was the glue. Right? I mean, it smelled great, and you could, you, could, you could stick stuff together. I mean, I didn't, really, I didn't really think in terms of, like, how do you get the best final product? I thought, dang it, I could glue some stuff together right now. Let's do that. So, I mean, I broke those things off as fast as I could, and I just figured, oh, that probably goes with that. And I put some glue on there and, you know, started cranking them together. And, you know, the glue's squishing out and getting all over my hands and the table. And, you know, I'll put this over there, and then I do this, and two minutes later, like, you can't get the wing off the table. You know, you know your parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? So, I mean, because, because the, the glue was the most important thing to me. It was the most interesting thing. It was the most accessible thing. It was the thing that got me going, right? It's the glue. Smell that. Hmm, right? Nick, you're not right, right? Yeah. Is he the senior pastor? So, um, 
And I think that's a really good picture of how to look at why God gave this thing called sex. I mean, think about this. God, God invents sex, right? I mean, Satan doesn't come up with this, and God's like, what did you do? I mean, like, this is something that God made, right? And see, the thing is, that it didn't have to be this way. I mean, if you think about, if you think about the biology of eating, like, your, your desire to eat isn't as intense as your sexual desire. I mean, it's not really. I mean, or, or like to go to the bathroom. You don't need like some kind of emotional ecstasy to, to go to the restroom, right? I mean, just a little urge is all you need to go do. I mean, why, I mean, why is it so, it's hormonal, it's, it's, it's it, you know, your neurons. I mean, everything's involved. It's like, woo. It, I mean, it's like, it's the most um, aggravated your body can be short of using heroin, right? I mean, it's, it's very intense. Now, what's the point of that? Um, and I think, it, I think the point of it pretty clearly is that it's, it's a bonding agent. It's meant to be a bonding agent. It's crazy glue. And it's, the reason that's important is, one, your marriage needs the bonding agent. And it's very important that it's there and that you keep re-gluing it because there's a lot of wear and tear. It's not a model that sits on a shelf. It's a plane that actually flies. And if it doesn't have enough holding it together, it will come apart in midair. You need it. It's important. But it also means that you've got to use it in a certain way. It has to be used with the frequency so that you've got enough adhesive at work for day-to-day needs. But what it also means is it has to come about at the right time, and it should be done in the right psychological way. Here's what I mean by that. For my brother, it worked because he glued things last. So he, the plane had its own integrity— Everything was where it was supposed to be, and then the glue fused it and held it together so that it could never come apart. But when he was done, what he had was a plane. You see, everybody knows that sex doesn't make relationships. It doesn't create relationships. In fact, there's lots of sociologists that couldn't be more secular that have come out and said that cohabitation and modern sexual use is totally unhelpful to produce families and lifelong relationships because it gets everything out of order. These are people that have no moral compunctions about non-married sexuality, but they're like, it's really bad, and here's why. Because there's no purpose to it. I mean, there's lots of people who cohabitated and they got married and they got divorced and they said, you know, the thing about it was the whole thing wasn't purposeful. We met, we liked each other, we started having sex, and then, you know, we thought, oh, it makes sense to live together, and it just kind of went along and then it all blew up. Well, there's two reasons it blows up. One is there was, it wasn't purposeful all the way along. And two, you didn't in- engage in, inti- in dating intimacy. Dating intimacy is called talking. It's called talking. And that is what prepares you for the gluing stage. Because here's the thing. Glue doesn't create anything in and of itself. All it can do is fuse something that already exists. And so the way the whole thing is supposed to play out is you have this thing called talking that happens for a while, which creates the relationship. It's called interacting, right? You create the relationship. And then you get to the point where everything gets snapped together and it's going to stay together. That's called getting married. It's a very helpful thing to do. And then once you get married, then you bond the thing with glue. And then you keep bonding it because it's not a model. It's a plane in use. And if you do it, what happens is when you get to the bonding, you're, you're not in trouble because, A, you're bonding something that's, that you have. You've got something to bond. You see, you can't—that's can, why you can never fix a relationship with sex alone, but it's also very hard to fix a marriage relationship without it. Because you've got to—in order, in order to recover the marriage, you've got to build the relationship, and then you have to fuse it. Build the relationship and fuse it. it it's very difficult to get anywhere without both of them. And so you can't, you can't fix anything, right? You can also, you can only fuse it. But the, the other thing is this, is psychologically how we come to it. It amplifies the thing you bring to it. In a relationship um, that happens between people when they do that, is psychologically amplifies the thing that you bring to the to the thing itself. So, if you engage in it over here, or if you do it this way when you're married, and it's, and it is initiated by mere attraction, then that's what it ends up being psychologically about. So, what does it bond? It bonds your, your attractional interest in the other person. Well, the problem is, is that you didn't really need that. You don't need adhesive for that. 
at least early on in the relationship, and that's really easy to start with anybody else. What you're, all you're doing is you're transfiguring the form of the person. Well, that's really easy to do. But if what you bring to the table is other things, like, for example, the fact that you respect the person, or the fact that you really adore their, pers- their, their personality, like who they are, the, the, the fact is not that they're a female or a male, but they're a particular woman, or a particular man, or that you admire the way they provide for and protect you, or you, you admire the way that they create a space. I mean, there's all kinds of things to admire and love and adore and care for. And when you bring those in— and you focus on the person rather than just the neurotic, sti- neurotic stimulation, all that, all that gets amplified psychologically when you engage. So whatever you bring psychologically to it gets transfigured, you see. So if it's not used for what it's for, you don't get the bonding. That's one of the reasons I think it works really—I mean, faces are meant to be towards each other. Right? I mean, it's, it's meant to be a psychological exchange. And when it amplifies your mutual respect, your mutual care, your mutual commitment, your mutual hardship, I mean, so, some couples report having some of the most intense experiences when they're going through something terrible. Why? It's because psychologically it's amplifying their shared hardship, which has substance, and it bonds them in it. And so it amplifies the whole experience. Why? Because amplifiers can only amplify the music going through them. They can't create any music. And so, and so here's why this is, this is important. Most affairs, when, when, when you have this break towards sexual morality, most affairs are not merely attractional. They have to do with relationship. They have to do with a sense of admiration that's not there, a sense of care that's not there. It's usually a relational turning in most affairs. It doesn't have to do with people getting their fix. I mean, this, a lot, it's very easy to read this passage and say, oh, men are pigs, they want to have sex every couple of days, this means I ought to play ball. You can read it that way if you want to, but it, I think it's more about the fact that the relational bonding between a couple needs to be constantly reglued on the basis of what binds them together in the covenant of the marriage, such that these other people don't have a chance, no matter how much they admire you, no matter how much they listen to you, no matter how much they affirm you. You've already received the admiration, affirmation, and mutual care, and, and all that within the marriage, so that these people are radically disadvantaged and your spouse is radically fortified against the temptation of sexual morality. Does that make sense? Okay. There's two things I think it's important to notice in the passage, and and this is important partly because we always get um, accused of, you know, there being sexism in the Bible or whatever, and um, people oftentimes attack the Apostle Paul for being very sexist and very tra- too traditionalist or whatever. But one of the things that you'll notice, nobody's making him say this, but what he says is absolutely 100% egalitarian between the genders. And, and, and it's very easy to read over that and go, oh, yeah, well, of course he gets it right one time. No, nobody, he didn't have to say this. He didn't have to say this. But he does say it. He wants it to be very clear. He wants it to be very clear to these men. That, um, and what you need to understand is in ancient Greek culture, many women felt very sexually abused. It's one of the reasons why in the first 300 years of the Christian church, um, the nobles referred to Christianity as that religion of the women and the slaves. Because Christianity was against abortion and killing of infants, which women hated, but it was often more economically advantageous for the family, and so it was forced upon them by the men. It, also, um, there, was, there was a lot of, I'll just say, sexual deviation put onto wives for birth control purposes that they didn't like and was very unhealthy for them. And Christianity forbade those sexual practices. The early bishops said you can't engage in intercourse in those ways. And women really liked that. And a lot of women became Christians, you see. And, and because Christianity always had this cutting-edge view of what sex was for and how it should be practiced, but that it was good within marriage and all that kind of thing. And so Paul doesn't have, and this is very much against the culture, but he says it. He says, in marriage, both people belong to each other. They belong to each other. And the the body of the wife does not belong to her alone. It does belong to the husband. And vice versa, the body of the husband does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. So that whatever the distinctions and gender roles Paul believed in, and there are some in the Bible— one, in one way, he did not believe in any distinction of role or value was in marriage and sex. Now, I'm not talking about the roles in marriage, but the standing and values in marriage. Does that make sense? The second thing is that when he refers to this, th- there is no verse in the Bible that says it should be done this much. 
But you get a very strong sense from these verses if you read them carefully that he's speaking of a significant regularity. Every couple has to figure out their own practice. But one of the things that this seems to be commending is a significant regularity. I mean, this is not referring to it. Every time you change your car's oil, you ought to go ahead and get freaky. I mean, that's not what this is saying, right? I mean, what this is saying is, is that, th- that this should be, I mean, this should be sort of as regular as, as prayer. I mean, this is, I mean, you st- stop doing this to pray. I mean, it's, very, it, 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 you know, it doesn't say, but I mean, I think it's very hard to get monthly out of this. Very hard. So you got fig- to figure that out. And, and um, but there's a very strong, I think, teaching of regularity in this. Now there's, there's um, a couple of applications, I think, that are important, and then, and then we'll end. Um, one is, if you, are the, if you are a person in a marriage, or if you, if you, you talk with somebody that's, that's that way, um, you need to be really careful how you use these verses. You be really, I, know, I know plenty of Christian, usually wives, who, who just kind of feel like this, is just a, this just ends up being a, a license or a hammer that their husband uses, and it's, it's, really, it's real ugly. And listen, if, if, if your wife isn't going to listen to this, these verses in the Bible itself or, or to me, they're not going to listen to you. Gonna, so just just don't, don't be mean. And, and one of the things I think is important, and it took me, it took me a long time. I, I, I mean, I, I'm ashamed to say this. It took me a long time to, to really figure this out. But, you know, I just feel like as a man, I, I need to— I need to look for, I feel like what I want for my wife is, because in our, our, our marriage is stereotypical in terms of drives, and, you know, I want her to look for opportunities to be with me. I want, I want her to do that. I wish, I wish she'd do that. You know, like that's, you know, if I, I get, you know, and we've talked about this, but I feel like, you know, what the reciprocal for me is, I ought to look for opportunities to just kind of let her off the hook. You know, I ought to be able to go, you know, like, I, I, you know, she's pregnant. We've got three kids. I mean, I mean I'd be able to be like, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay up working on my sermon, or, you know, I'm gonna, let, me, let me talk to you, or let's just, let's just pray together tonight, and, or, or to, to, to show affection that's not sexual at all. I mean, I, I mean, I feel like, you know, there's sometimes where, I, you know, I'm hoping she's reading this passage and saying, well, I need to, I need to move over that way, but there's sometimes I think I ought to be like, you know what, I know you're not in anything, right? You read your book, play your, send your word game thing on your phone to your, bro- your sister or brother or whatever. I mean, just, it, because it's good for me. To say no to things I, ha- I might even have a right to. It's good for me. It's good to say no to the body. It's good to, go- it's good to fast. I and mean, why the heck do you fast? Because it's good to tell your body no. It's good for you, right? It's good for you spiritually. It's good to show that you're not dominated by your physical body, that you have a mind, you have a free will, you're going to obey Jesus, right? It's good for you. So that's for that. Now, the other way around, let me say this. Um, for a number of reasons, some... Some, in some couples, one partner or another will kind of give up on being their spouse's ally on this, particularly for physical or abuse psychological reasons. It's, it's common. Um, and I, let me just say something about that. Listen, if it's for physical reasons, you should see a doctor or two before you just give up. There are things that happen as, as life matures, or there are things that, that happen in terms of anatomy or whatever, and you, and, and you don't want to talk about it, and it's, things are uncomfortable or whatever, and you just kind of, uh, and listen, listen, you really should want to be your spouse's ally in this. And don't, don't just go, oh, well, you know, you know, you know if, if you see a couple of physicians, you talk it through, and there isn't anything that can be done, well, this is a great opportunity for your husband and you, or, or your wife and you, to not, to, to accept that as a providence that's come to you, and, and, and see how God's grace is going to work in your life with that because you're going to stay in your role. You're not, you're not going to leave. You're going to, but, man, don't be morally lazy about that. Don't use it as an excuse. And a couple of the counselors in the, in, in the church have said to me that I should say that um, when it comes to sexual abuse, um, there really are good treatments out there that aren't like just like they just want to take your money for three years and go see a counselor and pay $100 an hour and you're not going to get any better. You're just going to be way a lot of money down the road and you're still going to feel the same way. That's not really true. There are some really effective therapies and we can get you a referral um, because, because listen, um, I want to be sensitive and most people are very sensitive to people who have been abused, um, whether it's the sort of later definition or the more serious ones. But there are two things that you can mean when you say, I'm dealing with something. Now, everybody needs to listen to this because people say, oh, I'm dealing with it, right? There's two things you can mean when you say, I'm dealing with something. You can mean, 
A, I'm proactively trying to get help and do the things that are necessary for me to be healed and whole as a person so that I can live out my full humanity in this area that's been broken by some circumstance or person or thing or choice. Or you could mean, I'm dealing with it, meaning I've been hurt and victimized. I have to carry around this pain for my life. I shouldn't have to do anything about it, and you shouldn't be bringing it up and leave me the heck alone. I'm dealing with it, meaning I'm emotionally enduring its persistence. Those do not mean the same thing, and they're not morally equal, and they're not both equally spiritually valid. Every Christian should be seeking redemption in as many areas of their life as possible. And especially in, in situations where your spouse is paying for some brokenness in you. And this, now, now, listen, I'm not just talking about sexual anymore now, am I? This could be anything. All, there's all kinds of things that affect us and affect how we lifelong relate to our spouses. Do not accept that. You should want to be your spouse's ally. You should want to be your spouse's ally. And, and, and get it. And listen, I'm not saying it's going to get better. All I'm saying is we should want to be our spouse's ally. We should want to get in the game. We should, we should want to get in there and do what we can. And don't, don't give up and just say, well, I've been hurt. So I'm not good at connecting relationally, or I don't want to, I don't feel like a sexual being, or I don't want to this, or this feels that. Does that make sense? Is that, have I said enough on that? Okay. So let me just end with this. This whole passage ultimately comes down to, whether it's singleness, whether it's divorce, or whether it's marriage, what we've talked about today, to basically just a very simple question. What kind of person are you? There's two kinds of people. There's the kind of person who seeks their happiness, goodness, and fulfillment, their holiness, um, by changing their situation, by getting the circumstances they want. And there's the kind of person who seeks to glorify and honor and know God and be transformed in the actual state of life that they're really in, embracing the roles and situation that God has ordained for them. And you know, here's the funny thing about this. It, comes, it really comes down to a very basic question. And you're going to be mad because you're going to be like, it really took you 50 minutes to say this. But it really basically comes down to a very simple question. That question is this. Does your life belong to you or does your life belong to God? You see, that's why this stuff, you see, remember I said before, this stuff isn't on the periphery. All this stuff really just comes down to a very simple question. Do you have faith? Do you believe, not just that God exists, but do you believe in God? Do you believe in him? Do you, is your confidence in him? Do you trust him? Do you have faith? What kind of person do you, do you, and who does your life belong to? Does your life belong to God that he can spend it the way he wishes for his own purposes, knowing that they will be for your own happiness and glory too? Or do you believe that your life belongs to you, and if Jesus wants to get with the program, he can, but if not, so much the worse for him? You see? The most practical man who ever lived said it this way in Mark's gospel. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? That's the most practical sentence ever stated. What good is it? What good is it for a person to manage their circumstances manage and, and get everything the way they want and, and, and get, think that they've managed things in a success but lose their soul. I mean, what good is that? Now, here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the problem. You're not going to be able to do it. Right? You're not going to be able to stick with that spouse. You're not going to be able to be celibate in singleness and be happy. You're not going to be able to not get a divorce. You're not, you're not going to be able to do those things. You don't have the motivation. You can't, I mean, you're, I mean, you, every, but here's the thing. You will, when you look to the one that had every reason to change his situation and all the power necessary to change his situation and didn't for you. When you look to Jesus, the one who said explicitly at the moment of the worst part of his role, if I wanted to, I could have 10,000 angels here to change this. I don't have to do this. I don't need this, and I don't need, I mean, he didn't. But he chose to accept his role to become as the man Jesus Christ the Savior, to walk out the plan of salvation, 
to love his neighbors and his enemies, and to ultimately glorify the Father in the maximum possible way. He had no need for that role, but he embraced his role, and he embraced his situation for what needed to be done for the glory of God, for the execution of salvation, and for the good of all people. And it's only when you look to him, it's only when you see that, it's only when you can taste of that beauty and understand the power behind that and trust in that one that you will, ha- you will have the strength to do that. You will realize your life belongs to God. You will realize that he wants good things for you and will transform you in that situation. You will really feel that. And the power of God's Spirit will work in you in such a way that you can be in virtually any situation. And you could be driven to want to seek your happiness, health, fulfillment, and pleasure in that situation rather than by just pitching it and trying something else. But ultimately, you and your life will be defined by this, by which kind of person are you and whose life you think yours is. Let's pray. Father, um, pray that you would impress on us not just the issues in relationship to marriage and not in the next weeks, even just in terms of singleness and divorce, but that you would press in us, on us the issue of what kind of person we are, what it means to have faith, what it means to believe that our life belongs to you, and you'll use it for your purposes, and it will be the greatest possible life for us. Help us to see that, and to love it, and to trust it, and to walk in it, and to help each other as we do so, and to apply it directly to our marriages as we become allies with our spouse against sexual immorality. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.